Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Buddhanamang Sangham Namasami This is one of those times I don't know where to start. So maybe I'll start with uh, the sutta that we chanted tonight. We're not to lock in a sutta. I really like that sutta. It's nice that our chanting book has the translation on the facing page so you can, if you're Quick with your with your reading skills, you can see what the English translation is as you're chanting it in Pali. I really appreciated that when I was learning that sutta. There's this way of putting the training the Buddha describes when he calls it the gradual training. There's at least two different ways that he describes it. One is uh, this gradual training of starting with generosity, moving on to virtue, which is the taking the precepts, then uh, various forms of restraint, and then uh, based on all that, finally developing uh, concentration and insight. So this gradual training takes place over the sequence of practices in this way. But another way he put it was um, more like a series of events. So uh, uh, one, so he says, um, the way the practice unfolds is a, a householder or a householder's son uh, gains confidence, and so this presumably comes from hearing about the reputation of the Buddha and uh, the description of the Dhamma as being something which is capable of bringing about the end of suffering. So one gains confidence, <clears throat> and then one visits. Uh, so one visits a teacher. Uh, from visiting, one draws close. So you become familiar with the teacher, you gain some sense of confidence in the teacher, drawing close one lends an ear. Lending an ear, one hears the Dhamma. Hearing the Dhamma, one remembers it. Remembering the Dhamma, one ponders it and turns it over in one's mind. Pondering it and turning it over in one's mind, one becomes, one, uh, one experiences conviction. In other words, one becomes convinced of its truth. Uh, based on this conviction arises desire. 
is the, the desire to practice and put the Dhamma into, into practice. From this desire, one t- undertakes the practices, and from this practice, one comes to see the truth for oneself. This is another way that gradual training is described. And the part that's uh, very, very important and I found extremely useful in my own practice is the part where you memorize the Dhamma, memorize aspects of the Dhamma. Not just for the sake of memorizing itself, although that can be rewarding by itself, but so that you have it at the, at the tip of your tongue, so to speak. It's always available to you. You can, at any moment, you can uh, internally recite, uh, feeling is not self. If feeling were self, then feeling would not lead to affliction. And one might be able to say, with regard to feeling, let my feeling be thus, let my feeling not be thus. But since feeling is not self, feeling therefore leads to affliction. And one is not able to say in regard to feeling, let my feeling be thus, let my feeling not be thus. And of course this applies to all five aggregates, not just feeling. <clears throat> and uh, what do you think about this, Because Is feeling permanent or impermanent? Is it nicha or anicca? Of course, the bhikkhus said, it's anicca. Is that which is impermanent happiness or unsatisfactory? And they say it's unsatisfactory. Is it fit to consider that which is impermanent and unsatisfactory? Yes, this is mine, I am this, this is myself. And they say, certainly not. Venerable sir. So having the English at the tip of your tongue, having seen it off enough that you remember it, uh, you can sort of recite that passage to yourself. And when you turn it over in your mind like this, like one of the things I, I realized at a certain point was that when the Buddha says, is it Nietzsche or Anicca? And the monks immediately say, it's Anicca. That <clears throat> the sutta makes it seem as though um, they're uh, kind of responding uh, to like a catechism, like it's a it's like a grade school teacher. You know, what's three times three? And the kids all say nine. But it's more um, by way of, of direct experience that they say that it's on each other. The monks would never say something. Ideally, his disciples aren't supposed to say things just because the Buddha says it's so but instead because they've seen it for themselves, that it's, that it's so. He's grounded his whole teaching on this idea that uh, one shouldn't go by authority or hearsay or because it's agreeable sounding, because it seems reasonable. But when you know and see for yourself that something is true, then it's reasonable to accept it as at least provisionally true. So, when his listeners respond with, uh, when, when they're asked, is it Nietzsche or Anicca? 
their response is grounded in their own direct experience. It's almost as if the Buddha says, well, consider feeling. Is it Nietzsche or is it Anicca? And in order to answer that question, you have to kind of look, go inside and look. Okay, look at, look at it feeling itself. What is feeling? It's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's the affective quality of all mental contacts. So when you're experiencing your body or when you're experiencing, well, any of the six sense spheres, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mental consciousness, mental contacts. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or it's neutral. There aren't any such contacts that have no feeling at all. They always have feeling. And so the Buddha says, if you look at that, what do you see? So when you do look at it, of course, you probably already know what you're going to see. But when we're responding to this question, is it Nietzsche or Anicca, we're responding from immediate first-hand knowledge. Like it's Anicca right, right now. If your knee hurts, it's Anicca right now. If you're grouchy or irritable, it's unpleasant right now. If you're bored, it's unpleasant right now. Feeling is happening right now. It's arising and passing away. It's changing. It's moving. It doesn't hold still. And all of our experience is coming to us this way. It's coming in constant waves and ripples and shape-shifting, almost indeterminate, constant flux. And this is part of what's meant by anicca. It doesn't hold still. It doesn't, it's not static. And it's not directly obvious from just noticing that something is anicca, whether or not it's sukha or dukkha, which is the next question. Maybe it's sukha. Right? Maybe something which is changing is great. You can really get a lot of pleasure out of it. And you can enjoy it. You can find happiness there. But if you try, as soon as you think you've got it made, it slips through your fingers. This is the very nature of something which is on each other, is you cannot hold on to it. And if you cannot hold on to it, then you can't really, uh, you can't really relax there, can you? If you can't relax, then how can you say that it's happy, or that it's happiness? or that it's a refuge, or that you can count on it. The same, by the way, counts for that which is, uh, that aspect of feeling which isn't pleasant. You can't really rely on it, you can't count on it always being there for you. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, but the point that the Buddha is making is that it, it just isn't a source of reliable safety for your mind. And it should be obvious, but of course, we keep falling for the same delusion over and over again. Things which are inherently uncertain 
like our moods, we take them as real. And we believe them. And we act accordingly. Or our beliefs, our views, our ideas about others, our ideas about ourselves, our thoughts about the world, and our place in it. All of these are mental contacts of one sort or another. They all have feeling with them. They're all coming from the sixth sense space. And we take them to be real, even though they obviously are not. This is what the Buddha is trying to get, get us to see over and over again with this kind of teaching. That's why it's so repetitive. He doesn't just say it once and, and say, and then and just fill in the blanks for yourself. He actually goes to the trouble to say each for each sense sphere, for each aggregate, is it Nietzsche or is it Anicca? Look at it and tell me. And if you're a good student, you look and you see. You say, right now it looks like it's Anicca. Is that a safe place to rest or not? It's not. So when you see this, even then you can't rest on that conclusion. This is the challenging aspect of this practice. Say you know that, say you know already that things are anicca. Well, it doesn't mean that you're done. Right? Like you, you can know that, that things are anicca. You can know that things which are anicca are inherently, uns, because of their inherent uncertainty, are can't be a source of satisfaction. You can know that's true. And you can also know that, therefore, it cannot be something that belongs to a self, or is a self, or is it characteristic of a self, by definition. And you can know all those things, and you can still suffer as though you don't know anything at all. And so the, uh, the, the task here is to keep, keep at it, keep including more and more aspects of your direct experience in everyday life as much as you can. Seeing that this too is anicca, this too is unreliable, this too is doesn't have the permanence that it seems to have. What we're trying to do is get past a layer of presumption. It's the habit of the human mind. We all think that we already know the truth. We, are, we all think that our perception is disclosing to us the final word on the way things are. And if we have a habit of viewing things a certain way, then what our perception seems to reveal to us is confirmation. Modern psychology has detected this and has a word for it, confirmation bias. So... Uh, Say that you're a, I saw a little news article about some hovering lights over a city in Arizona. Reading Arizona news. <laughs> and the hovering lights, um, uh, I can't remember what the headline said, but some people are saying, oh, it's, it's, it's a UFO, it's, it's aliens. So 
say that you're the, uh, a person who's determined already for themselves that you know really there's no such thing as aliens. It's either balloons or it's drones or it's fireworks or it's uh, what you know it's military stuff or something. But it's not aliens. This is that's ridiculous. That's aliens are up there with like you know leprechauns and and Bigfoot. And it's just that's crazy stuff. And so when you read that article about the hovering lights in Tucson, or Mesa, or wherever it was, um, your mind will interpret the article with that, that inclination to understand it this way. Say, okay, some foolish people think it's aliens, um, but it's just uh, some unexplained, you know, maybe it is indeed unidentified. But whatever it is, it's, that's not it. It's not it. And then, of course, you can find plenty of people who will say the opposite. It's definitely aliens. You know, like there's no other explanation for it. The military's not taking responsibility for it. It can't be drones. It's too big. It's too stable. They'll, they'll, they'll find all the reasons why it supports the thesis that it's it's alien or probably alien. We do that with our views about about medicine, about food, about politics, about uh, everything, especially about ourselves. So um, if you think you're clever or you're clumsy or you're, you're uh, slow to pick up on things or you're quick or you, whatever view you have about yourself, about any aspect of human experience, um, including things like your gender and your nationality, right? You, whenever you look at the world or whenever you look at experience, uh, those things seem like they're constantly being confirmed as true. So you don't need to you don't need to think about it. And in a practical way, that's probably a good thing. We're not we don't have to rediscover the world every time we encounter it. But because we tend to interpret everything based on what we already believe to be true, our minds are closed. We can't actually discover anything new as long as we're looking through the filters of our preconceptions. And this is the obstacle that we have to overcome if we want to get down to the actual truth of things. We almost have to deconstruct the world or being a, be willing to look at the world both in terms of its conventional truth and the unconventional truth that lies underneath to see it over and over and over again until something changes in our heart and we loosen our grip on our views. When we're able to do this, not only do our own views become very suspect, like your views, of my views about politics, Here's an interesting story, something that happened in my progression through uh, as I was practicing. There was this, uh, everybody's aware of this uh, issue called climate change, global warming. And almost everybody has a view about it, one sort or another. There was a website that I liked called Climate Debate Daily. And it used to feature articles from both sides of the climate debate. So articles that were supposedly 
supportive of the theory that there is such a thing as climate change that's being driven by human activity, and we need to do something about it. And so they'd write about melting glaciers and rising sea levels. And uh, the other side of the debate is that, no, it's like climate change has always been there, and human-caused global warming is not really a thing, and it's just, uh, it's kind of bogus. And they'd write about things like you know, the population explosion of polar bears, and the fact that sea levels really aren't rising very much at all, and no faster than they ever have before. And so you could find articles that would support either side of this debate. And the authors of the website, um, as, a, as their uh, as sort of thesis, is that if we just get all the data and all the information um, uh, published here side by side so people can judge for themselves, then presumably the truth will, will overcome and, uh, confirmation biases. People will be able to see which side is true and, and, and will we'll come to some sort of consensus. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so they ran this website for like uh, five or ten years, something like that, a really long time. And we go there once a month or so and take a look. And one month I went there, and they said we're we're shutting down the website. You know, this is our. We're still going to leave it up for a while, but we're not going to add any new articles. And it's because we we've been running a poll for the last two years, asking people about what their views are and whether their views have been shifted at all because of our website. And like less than 1% of people have changed their mind. <laughs> so everybody comes to the website, and what they experience is the, the articles which agree with their view seem reasonable, balanced, and well-researched. And the articles which disagree with their view seem uh, like cherry-picked data and biased and uh, you know, unconvincing. And it doesn't matter which side of the debate that you're, you land on, the articles from the other side look that way to you. And the, and the articles from your side look uh, persuasive to you. And so this is a, a prime example of how confirmation bias works. And the people who are writing the articles are well qualified. They're scientists. They're, they're respectable people who are, who've done their research. And the people who are reading the articles are, have enough education and competence to navigate their way there and read articles on both sides and answer poll questions. So there, there's nobody in this, involved in this who is somehow deficient as a human being. And yet, uh, there's a, a, a seemingly uh, answerable to truth kind of question. Is global warming really significant and meaningful and something that we should do something about or not? It seems like there should be a yes or no answer. Like it should be really clear cut. And any honest person should be able to uh, agree with all other honest people about what the answer is. But it just doesn't work that way. Our minds and our hearts just do not work that way. And to realize that this is true about you too, and it's that this confirmation bias process is operating all the time, it's filtering everything you're experiencing. That's very important. That's, that's what the Buddha is, uh, in his own terms, trying to get us to see. That our minds are framing things for us. They're filtering things. They're coloring things. And 
we're automatically discounting what doesn't agree with what we already believe. And we're amplifying what does agree with what we already believe. Because our minds like surety. They like certainty. Our minds don't like uncertainty. They're designed, you could say, to reduce and minimize and eliminate uncertainty. Because uncertainty represents danger. So our, our cognitive equipment, we're endowed by nature to seek uh, a comfortable interpretation of reality that gives us a sense of certitude and safety. Whenever we don't know what's going on, we're not really sure, we're motivated to discover what's going on, to get to the bottom of it. And once we think that we've gotten to the bottom of it, then we can relax, because now we know. And so this is something that's built into our equipment. Once we think we know, the, the amount of uh, distress involved in throwing out our previous beliefs and going back to the drawing board and trying to rediscover what the truth is from scratch, uh, that's, a, that's, a big, uh, that's a big thing to ask from a person. Like, please stop believing all the stuff that you believe about yourself in the world and start from scratch, start over. Our minds just literally will not do that. It's too dangerous. Right? That would be like going insane. So the Buddha comes at it a slightly different way. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't say there is no self. What he says is, is form permanent or impermanent? He has us kind of work our way through it catechismically like this and see for ourselves. So we can conclude that, okay, yeah, there's no self in form, nor is there the possibility of there being a self who's in charge of form. And yet there is form, and there's experience of self. Right? So that the truth about form is not self doesn't necessarily contradict our worldview that there is self. Right? So by having us approach it this way, we can sort of sneak up on the change of worldview that's necessary to bring about the end of suffering. Because it's, the point is not so much to get you to... to believe something new, but to see how it is that the mind creates reality with its filters and its concepts and its beliefs. When you can see how it is that the mind does this, you also get to see how the mind creates suffering. That this creation of suffering is something which is the mind is doing. It's not something that's inherent in reality itself. It's a function of the mind. It, it happens through this grasping. Grasping is something that happens at the level of mentality. Uh, we grasp at our views and beliefs and ideas and opinions. And this grasping makes us vulnerable to the suffering when things don't turn out to be as solid and real and continuous as we like to think they are. So we grasp at things that cause us pain, and we don't recognize inherently that this grasping is something which is volitional, that we don't have to grasp. So our concepts and our opinions are a necessary part of our mental life. We can't really be human beings without them. 
But it's also possible to go beyond that and see that one's opinions, one's belief in global warming, for example, is just a belief. Uh, It doesn't require that you cling to the belief. It's just a belief. You can believe that there can be this belief that global warming is true or not. And you can still be happy because you don't have to cling to it. That's just one example. This goes right to the heart of our, of our situation as suffering human beings. We believe things about ourselves. We believe things about how others view us. We believe things about other people. We believe things about the world. And they seem so true, so real, so concrete, so incontrovertible. This is just our confirmation bias operating. Because the truth is, everything that we think we know about ourselves is uncertain. It's not static. It's simply based on memory and experience and conditioning. Because what's happening right now, in this very moment, is the only thing that's actually true, that can actually be known. So the tendency of the mind to think that it knows things that happened in the past, or it might happen in the future, uh, or happen only in fantasy, is because of our conceptual overlays. When we grasp at those things, that's where we're most likely to suffer. So this teaching about memorizing the teaching and then turning it over in your mind, it gives you this tool that you can bring to your your immediate experience. You turn over this teaching about not-self, and you examine it in light of your own experience. It shines a light in a way that just just taking it for granted that it must be true because the Buddha said it's true, that doesn't do much to transform your life. But when you take it Seriously, when you try to apply it to your own immediate experience, like right now, is it permanent or is it impermanent? Is it changing or is it constant? Is it static? Or is it kind of wiggly? Whatever it is. A thought, a song playing through your head, a recurring theme of your moods. Are they really static? Do they go somewhere and wait in a closet inside your mind when you're not experiencing them, continuing to exist? Or do they really only exist when you're experiencing them? Is that existence something which is constant, or does it have variability to it? The only way you can really say is to look while it's happening. So anicca is not something that we discover uh, just once during a deep meditation retreat. It's something that's available to be discovered every moment of waking mindfulness. And the more we pay attention to that, the less convincing the conceptual conceptual overlay of, oh, it's it's always going to be like this, or it's always been like this, or this is how it always is. That conceptual overlay is becomes kind of permeable, kind of questionable when we see for ourselves over and over again how 
how very much anicca everything is. And then everything else follows from that. The idea of taking hold of it, grasping onto it, taking refuge in it, counting on it for the future, expecting that it will always be this way. All these things that the mind does because of its confirmation bias becomes a lot more tractable. We can start working with it in a way that helps us free our hearts from suffering and the causes of suffering. So, I leave these <clears throat> few words for your consideration. And the Mayang Dhammakataya Sadhu Karanga say Sadhu Sadhu